So the reading today is from 1 Samuel 17. So if you want to turn to that to your Bibles, that's going to be on the screen in front of you as well. And if you're new to church and you don't have a Bible, grab me in the foyer afterwards. I'd love to, to connect you in with a Bible to take home with you. So 1 Samuel 17. It's quite a big passage. We're joining um, David and King Saul in a, in a passage of Scripture where um, there's, a, there's a battle going on in the battlefield. And, and the shepherd boy David has, uh, has come up to King Saul. So 1 Samuel 17, verse 32. <clears throat> David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man. And this has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it and struck it and rescued the sheep from it, from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Because he has defiled the armies of the living God. The God who rescued me from the poor of the lion and the poor of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put on a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the stream. He put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag. And with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and I'll cut off your head. This very day, I'll give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the God saves, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. 
This is the word of God. Have you ever had someone take your place for a job or something that you really didn't want to do? Have you ever had someone, whether it was something at work that you were kind of dreading doing or something around the house and you've gone to do it only to find that someone has already completed that task for you? It could be something big and significant or it could be something very small but important like doing the dishes. Have you ever had that at home where you know the sink is full of dishes, you know there's so much that you still have to do, and you finally get the energy to come and do that kind of dirty but daily task of coming to do the dishes, only to find that they're beautifully washed, they're all nicely stacked and drying, and you don't have to do that job. And as you stand there and look at that clean sink and all the clean dishes, you're just filled with thankfulness and gratitude and appreciation because a job that you were not looking forward to doing has been done by someone else. Well, as has already been mentioned, we're in a series looking at the life of David. And today we come to one of the most well-known stories about the life of David. In fact, this is probably one of the most well-known stories in the whole Bible. It's not just known within Christian circles, but it's even known in our culture. People often use the David and Goliath analogy. They may not know verse and chapter or where you find it in the Bible, but people have an understanding of this story. A simple, humble shepherd boy faces a huge giant of a man in full battle gear, and yet the little guy wins. I reckon particularly as Australians, we love this story, right? We're all about the Aussie battler. We're all about knocking down the tall poppy, and it's such a story of hope and such a story of of just for for us to look towards, to go, anything is possible. Anything is possible. Yet let's have a look as we go throughout today to look at some of the different people, the different characters we find in this story. Because I acknowledge it is a very well-known story. Who knows, you've probably heard 63 sermons already on David and Goliath. But let's just quickly look at the different characters within this story. To begin with, let's look at Goliath himself. Now, we heard the result of this, this fight, beautifully read by Ryan. Thank you, Ryan. But we hear a little bit more about Goliath at the start of the chapter. And you can see here depicted in this image, Goliath was huge and he was uh, well armed. Earlier in the chapter, this is what it says of Goliath. A, A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height 
was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale of armour of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and the bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Now, no matter how you do the maths or how you interpret how heavy this armour is and how great Goliath was, one, uh, one commentator I was reading actually said, the detail that is given to Goliath is greater than a lot of detail given throughout the Old Testament. This is an unusual amount of detail than what is usually given. But it's just to put out there for us to go. Goliath was big, he was strong, and he had amazing armour, right? It gives us the picture. We can all understand and appreciate that. I mean, he even had an entourage. Like he had a shield bearer that went ahead of him that carried his shield for him. He had everything that he needed for this battle. And you can imagine how the Israelite army were feeling when he would come out, and not only did he look the part, not only did he have everything for the fight, but his words were so offensive to the Israelites as well. It reminds me of a couple of years ago when we were on the Gold Coast as a family and we went to uh, Ripley's Museum. Now, I don't know if you've heard of Ripley's before. They've got books. They highlight all the strange and wacky things in our world. And so in this particular museum we went to, they actually had a statue of the tallest man on record in the whole world. And uh, they had a statue and he was sitting down in a chair and then you'd press a button and he would stand to his full height. Now, here is a picture of Robert Wadlow, just the statue, standing next to my husband, Cameron, who, as you can see, is nearly six foot tall. And yet this man stood even higher, even taller than he did. And our two boys were there, and I really wanted a picture of our shorter children standing next to this statue. But this is a picture of our boys, as they were looking at this statue, they were terrified. And the older one, as you can see, is literally tucked behind my back under my arm. This was a statue wearing some kind of floral Hawaiian shirt. He couldn't speak. He couldn't move. It wasn't even the real person. And yet our boys were terrified because of how tall he was. Now, David was probably a little older than our boys were. And we don't know, you know, I don't think Goliath was quite as tall as the tallest man in history. However, in this story, what the writer is trying to help us to understand is the difference between the two. And how great and strong Goliath was. And really, when we look at David, how weak and insignificant he was as well. 
So let's look a little bit more at David because it wasn't just his outward appearance that was insignificant. In fact, as we read through the story, we know David was an Israelite. Now, if you have grown up in church like I have, and you've heard or maybe read through the Old Testament, you hear a lot about the Israelites, right? In our faith, the the Israelites are such important people. This is the nation that God chose to show all the other nations what it was to follow the one true God. And as you read constantly throughout the Bible, it talks about the Israelites, about the Jewish people, about how important it was, how much God loved them and and continued to partner with them in everything that he wanted to do and fulfill here on earth. When I was at uni, I had to uh, fill up one of my degrees with some extra subjects. And so I decided to do a history subject of ancient history, because I thought, well, you know, I've looked at ancient history a lot through my faith. I've read about it in the Old Testament. This might be really helpful for me. It may even, like, help the subject to be a little bit easier because I know a little bit about it already. They hardly talked about the Israelites at all. They hardly talked about Israel at all because, in actual fact, in the time Israel was not this huge, successful, massive country or nation. It was actually quite an insignificant nation. You had Assyria up in the north, a great nation. You had Egypt down at the south. In actual fact, Israel was almost like just a stopping point, somewhere you had to go through to get from Egypt to Assyria. It was that insignificant. If I think about it, I kind of think, like, if you are driving from Melbourne to Sydney, Israel was kind of like Wangaratta Maccas. <laughs> like, it's not your destination. It's not what you're aiming for. But you kind of stop there because, you know, you've got a certain way through your journey, but you really, you're heading somewhere else, Right? This is kind of what Israel was. It's so significant for us in our faith and in understanding. But in the context of the time, Israel was not the huge nation. We hear about all the wins in the Bible. It wasn't as significant as all these other nations around. And yet here is David. He is an Israelite. Therefore, if you think about it from the context at the time, he's not significant because He's only an Israelite. Not only that, but he was born in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem wasn't even one of the most significant cities or towns in Israel. It was kind of the backwater town. I'm not going to name any suburbs that we could relate to that. But you know, it wasn't the major metropolis. It wasn't even the religious hub. He was an Israelite. He was born in Bethlehem. He was a son of Jesse. Now, Jesse wasn't even that important. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't a judge. He wasn't even an elder in the town. And yet here is David as one of his sons. Now, not the eldest son, as we looked at last week when we looked at the anointing of David. He was son number eight. Now, if you were around last year for our Revelation series, you would have heard that numbers are important 
in history, in culture, in the Hebrew language, numbers were important. There was one particular number, this is maybe stretching your memory, one particular number that was the perfect number. It meant whole. It was the number that was given to God. Does anyone remember what that number was? Seven. That's right. Seven was the, is the number representing wholeness, perfection. It was the number given to God. David didn't even fit into the top seven of his family. He was so insignificant. And as we heard last week, with the anointing of David, he wasn't even invited along to be considered to be anointed. In fact, uh, Robert Alter, who is a, a Hebrew scholar and professor, says this about David. By his sheer youth, he has been excluded from consideration as a kind of male Cinderella left to his domestic chores instead of being invited to the party. This happened in chapter 16, we heard about last week, when he wasn't invited to the party of being considered someone to be anointed as the future king of Israel. And here again, we see it in this chapter where David's actually not even within the army to defeat the Philistines. He's not even supposed to be there. He was just the messenger going from home to the battlefield for his older brothers who are in the army. This is how insignificant David is. An Israelite born in Bethlehem, a son of who? Jesse, the eighth son, not considered for anything significant. And yet, here in this battle, they are looking for someone to step in to fight the battle. This wasn't always done, but it wasn't unheard of. And Goliath is stepping in saying, I am the champion. I am standing in the place of the whole army. And not just the whole army, but he also represented the gods of that army as well. And he was saying, I am the champion. I am representing everyone behind me. And I am willing to put myself in the place of battle. And let your army bring forward a champion, and we will fight it out. Often they would do this so there wasn't as much bloodshed across all the armies that everyone would have to fight. They would choose a champion. And this is what Goliath is calling the Israelites to do. Now, who would be a much better champion than an Israelite born in Bethlehem, the son of, Dave, son of Jesse, who is only the eighth in line, wasn't even supposed to be in the army. Well, we hear about someone. Did you say it? Who should step in place? Surely King Saul. Surely King Saul, he is well equipped. He had all the armor. And if we remember from last week, they described his height. He was what? One head taller. It says in our scriptures, he was a head taller than anyone else. 
He was the king. He could have chosen anyone to be his shield bearer and they would have had to have come because he was the king, right? Surely Saul would have been a better champion. But even he wasn't willing to stand in that place. But there's someone else in this story as well. We've looked at Goliath, we've looked at David, we've looked at Saul. But there's someone else in this story as well. And as I've got the image up there of the battle between David and Goliath, if you look in the background, who do you see? The army. The whole army is there on the battlefield. They, for days and days and days, have heard Goliath come to defy their God, to call them out, to tell them how bad they are and how great he is. And he has challenged every single one of them. Any one of them could have stepped forward as the champion. But every single one of them knew their weakness, knew their fears, and chose instead to stay silent. Tim Keller, who is an incredible theologian, author, and speaker, helped me to see that in actual fact, in this story, there are some incredible analogies that we can draw from. So often we look at this story and we think of Goliath as all our fears and our struggles in our life the addictions, the things that we do wrong, the pressures from culture that we have on our lives, the broken relationships, all of these things that are a reality in our lives. And we often are called to put ourselves in David's shoes, that if we have faith in God, we will have the strength with whatever is in our hands to defeat the mighty Goliath. An incredible, helpful, inspiring analogy for our lives. But the thing is, is that Tim Keller helped me understand that instead of being like David, I'm probably a lot more like the army. That see it, acknowledge the difficult things in our life, but feel so weak and have like limited ability to conquer or deal with anything and no desire to step into that place as a substitute, as a champion to fight against Goliath. Here, Tim Keller says that even David himself does not give them an example or an inspiration. David gave them a saviour. He gives them a champion. In other words, he does not help them deal with their cowardice through emulation and inspiration. He helps them deal with the cowardice through substitution and imputation. David doesn't step in as the champion and then say to the rest of the army, you do what I'm doing because look how well it's turned out. No, he literally substituted himself for the rest of the army. So they didn't have to fight the battle. So they didn't have to confront Goliath or any of the Philistines. Here is 
a young man, a young shepherd boy, totally out of his depth, an Israelite born in Bethlehem to the son of some guy, and yet he put himself in the place for the rest of the army. Is this, is this story ringing a bell? That a thousand years later, we hear an even greater story of someone who seemed insignificant, and yet he put himself in the place for all people to have victory and to conquer death. The story of David and Goliath is an incredible one because it is a signpost of what was to come. It was a signpost of a, a battle that was even greater than two nations fighting it out on the battlefield. It was a battle between life and death, good and evil. And when we were looking for a champion, God himself through Jesus Christ was well, willing to put himself in the place of the champion, not just for a nation, not just for all the world at that point in time, but for all of humanity for all time. And as we read through even the Old Testament, as we read through the prophets of what they were to say about this Messiah, it helps us to see the similarities between David and Jesus. In Isaiah 52, Starting at verse 2, it talks about how insignificant Jesus, this Messiah, actually was going to seem. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. But the passage goes on to talk about the substitution that Jesus made on our behalf. And the emphasis I've put in this, the underlying, is my emphasis to help us understand. Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This was the ultimate substitution the ultimate champion, the ultimate Messiah that he did for all mankind. Keller says, David only saved his people from physical death. Jesus Christ saved us from eternal death. David only risked his life for his people. Jesus saves us at the cost of his life. David only went into the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus goes into death. And if you believe in him, 
all the great things that he has, he does, are imputed to you. He is the champion. Therefore, whatever happens to him happens for the rest of the army. If David lost, the whole army lost. If David won, then the whole family won, the whole army. And this is what Jesus does for each one of us. When he went to the cross, when he confronted death, if he had have lost, all would have been lost. But we worship a God and Saviour who conquered death and held the victory. So now that victory is ours. We won that victory not because of anything we did, because of the victory of Jesus Christ. His death and his resurrection gives us the victory, not because of anything we've done or anything we deserve, but because he put himself as a substitute into that place for us. So if I look at something as simple as dishes, and if I see that someone has taken that chore away from me, and the dishes have been done, and it's something that I don't have to waste another 20 minutes of my life doing, and I think about standing in front of a clean sink, oh, and how much joy it brings me. And as I think about the appreciation and the thankfulness that I experience when someone does even just a simple chore for me, how much more love and appreciation and thanksgiving do I experience when I think of the substitution that Jesus took in my place? that the victory that he was willing to take on, the battle that he took on for you and for me, how can we not look at him with awe and wonder and thanksgiving and praise and glory? Because the victory that he won, we get to celebrate as well. It doesn't matter how insignificant we feel. It doesn't matter where we were born, what our family history it is. It doesn't matter what we have done, how much money we've got in our bank account, what our job is, what our family is like. It doesn't matter. Paul said it beautifully in 2 Corinthians 12. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the powerful message of the David and Goliath story. 
not something that happened 3,000 years ago that can give us inspiration, but it pointed us to an even more important story of someone who was willing to be the champion, to step in the place of us, take on the battle between all that we face in our world. And he won. He had the victory. And so that victory now is yours and is mine as well when we believe in him. Now, you might be here today, whether you're watching online or here in the building, and you've thought, I don't know if that victory truly is mine. Do I really believe that Jesus would do that for me? Well, I hope you can hear in this story that he was willing to do that for you. And all you need to do in your weakness is believe in him. And in doing so, you are welcomed into the family of God and you are welcomed into the victory that he has already won. And all you have to do is talk to God about it. It might be in a simple prayer and it goes as simple as, Jesus, I believe you were the son of God. Jesus, I believe that you came to earth and you died in my place and that you rose again, having victory over sin and death so that no matter what I have done, no matter what choices I have made, in my sin and my wrongdoing, God, I ask for forgiveness and I accept the victory that you have won on my behalf. That's all you have to say. And can I encourage you that if you want to say that prayer or if you've said that along with me today, please speak to someone, speak to another Christian, speak to another believer, whether it's someone in this faith community, someone you know, contact us. We would love to start that journey with you. But the thing, the great thing about this story is it's not just important for people who are new to faith, but it is a reminder to every single one of us that the victory has already been won. And a great reminder that we do on a regular basis is we come to a time of communion where we take a piece of biscuit that reminds us of the battle that Jesus went through, of his body broken on the cross. We take some juice that is a reminder of Jesus's blood shed that the battle was not an easy one for him. But it's a reminder for all believers that he was willing to do it for you and for me. And as we come to a time of communion, may it be a reminder for every single one of us that Jesus took the place for us. He fights the battle for us. And it doesn't matter how insignificant or weak we feel we are. We have victory because Jesus had victory. 
So in a moment, we're going to ask the ushers to come forward. Row by row, they'll invite you to come forward to take the emblems that represent Jesus's body and his blood broken for us as he took the place for us. And everyone is welcome to take the bread, pick up a, a cup of juice, bring it back to your seat and spend some time with a victorious God who loves you and substituted your place so that you could live and love and have victory in life, not from what you do, but for what he has done. Will you join with me as I pray? Lord Jesus, as we come to a time of communion, with David and Goliath's story fresh in our minds, we stand in awe and thanksgiving that you are a God who loves us so much that you were willing to be our champion. You were willing to be our Messiah. You were willing to be the substitute when it should have been us suffering the punishment that you took that place. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the victory that means in our lives today. That we don't have to have all that we think that we need to conquer in life. We just need a relationship with you. We come before you humbly, Lord Jesus. We ask for forgiveness for the things that we have done wrong. And as we share in this symbolic meal, we worship and give you the thanksgiving and the adoration that you are so worthy of as we acknowledge and celebrate your victory over death, your victory over sin. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. We pray this in your mighty, gracious name. Amen.